This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think there is a upside opportunity, I would say, to enabling uh, humanitarian organizations to continue that neutrality, but still to better uh, advocate for um, the kinds of uh, collaborative actions that we would want to see from uh, the U.S. military or any military, frankly, that's a player within a conflict. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. On March 6th, I sat down with Michelle Nunn, the president and CEO of Care USA, for a Smart Women, Smart Power conversation. We talked about her role leading an organization through countless humanitarian crises, from navigating, most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the horrific earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. She's built her career of service as a social entrepreneur and nonprofit CEO, with all of her work centered in gender equality. The Smart Women, Smart Power speaker series is supported by City. So, Michelle, let's just get started. Here at Smart Women, Smart Power, we love to know people's origin stories. So I'd love to know what drew you into the world of humanitarian aid and international affairs? Yeah, well, I um, I had a, a bit of a circuitous route to, to this to this place, as I think we all do in some sense. But, uh, you know, I, I spent a good part of my career in the work of uh, civic engagement and volunteerism in the U.S. Uh, and um, building an organization that ultimately merged uh, with uh, President George H.W. Bush's Points of Light organization. Okay. But all along the way, I had, a, for instance, a fellowship with the Kellogg Foundation looking at uh, social justice and faith traditions globally around the world, in which I studied that for three years. I actually started out thinking I would go in the Peace Corps. So when the opportunity, after running for the U.S. Senate uh, in Georgia, and not quite my time in 2014, when uh, when the opportunity to uh, to to apply for and eventually to become the CEO of CARE, uh, that when that presented itself, it was such a combination of the things that I uh, absolutely am passionate about, which is you know the, our mission save lives, uh, defeat poverty, and we center women and girls. And, you know, as you mentioned, we have an enormous reach, a 75 plus year history. And, uh, and you know, every year we're reaching close to 200 million people. And, um, and so it is a, a real fulfillment of, of uh, perhaps a, a long arc to be able to serve on this platform at this moment in time. The past three years have produced countless tragedies from the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the deadly earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, uh, to the growing hunger crisis. Um, one of the terms of art that's being bandied around right now is polycrises. Uh, how are you thinking about managing multiple humanitarian crises sim uh, simultaneously? 
Yeah. Well, I think that this was this was so clear to us uh, at the sort of at the at the moment at which COVID uh, struck in those early months when, you know, CARE had 75 plus years of dealing with humanitarian disasters around the world. And yet we had never uh, seen, for instance, a global pandemic in which we were operating simultaneously in, you know, over 100 different countries that were all dealing with that crisis. And so I think, um, unfortunately, we've all had to find ways ways of, of uh, a different kind of response and agility to multiple simultaneous crises at once. And, you know, if you just think about the last couple of years, you sort of think about this rolling uh, set of, and they're not sequential, so they're overlapping right. uh, humanitarian crisis. So, you know, again, right now, uh, we just marked the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, simultaneous to our work in, uh, in, in Turkey and Syria, where we have this, you know, Know, really unprecedented in the last almost hundred years uh, earthquake, and and then at the same time we have, for instance, a global hunger crisis that is uh, that is at a breaking point in forty nine countries. So I think. Um, as, as actors in the humanitarian space, we're all trying to, to meet the challenge of scale and agility that's required for all of us. And I think we're also looking at how does this, how does our global community uh, rise to this challenge in terms of resourcing these, uh, these uh, disasters and these challenges and continue to make progress on the larger and longer term development front. And at the same time, perhaps do we need changes in our overall system in order to, uh, you know, to be able to better deal with what seems like the reality when you think about um, now also climate uh, justice, climate change, climate mm-hmm. crisis as uh, an exasperating force in the coming years ahead. We, we have to be able to deal with this in different ways. Well, you mentioned resources and, you know, the short term versus long term. And that raises the question of of prioritization. You know, how, how do you think about which efforts to prioritize or deprioritize as CARE organizes its humanitarian assistance in all of these different countries. Yeah, well, it's. It, I think that is an impossible and difficult uh, <laughs> every single day. Yeah. And, and the reality is that, uh, that some crises are, are getting more support than others. Uh, I was just listening to an interview with our CARE country director in Yemen who was saying that uh, the global communities met only 23% of the required funding as articulated by the UN. Um, you know, other crises are getting are closer to uh, to the full uh, sort of um, benchmark that has been set. But uh, the global community has some prioritizing to do, and we need to make sure that it's not just um, that it's not based upon just geopolitical concerns, but that is taking into account the absolute objective humanitarian realities that people are facing. We see a lot of crises that don't get nearly as much attention, for instance, mm-hmm. as the Ukrainian crisis. And so uh, we need to, you know, we need to ensure that we're using those systems that we have, the UN based systems to, uh, to to allocate in the way that is proportional to the needs around the world. From a care perspective, we think about where can we make a differentiated uh, and, and valuable contribution? How do we work in alignment with other actors to ensure, for instance, that uh, that the work that we're doing is locally rooted and that we have um, 
a real uh, capacity for um, for the highest level of impact. And I will tell you that one thing we're struggling with is, I think when I came to CARE, we were about 30% humanitarian and about 70% long-term development. We're now closer to 60% humanitarian response. And that's because of the you know enormity of the needs in the world, but it's also because that's where the resources are going. So we, we have to, uh, we can't always be in reactive mode. We have to also look at not only how do we put out the fires but how do we ensure that they're not new fires that are starting um, that we that we need to be ensuring that we are uh, you know tending to, um, to to the to the work of our long-term development for resiliency for communities uh, as we move forward in the world so that begs another question so we've got um, you know Ukraine the Ukraine crisis the um, what's happening in Turkey and Syria what are the other flashpoints or hotspots that you think we as a global community should be paying more attention to? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just think about what uh, what has fallen out of the headlines, Afghanistan's an example, right? We uh, we had a lot of of, uh, of headlines around Afghanistan in the wake of the Taliban takeover, but he, Afghanistan is one of the largest humanitarian disasters in the world right now. Um, Yemen is another example. Uh, you know, if you think about how often do we read about um, Sudan or South Sudan, um, and, you know, not nearly as often. You know, there's been there was a conflict in Ethiopia that's been going on for some time and uh, more more people died in that conflict than in Ukraine to date, but we see very little attention to that. So some of it is how do we balance out um, what 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 we receive from the, the news media, for instance, and how do we have more a, a true global perspective about those those needs? And then I think we need to also, as you say, look to where the next uh, where's the next horizon of crisis. So often issues of water and issues of hunger are precipitators mm. of conflict and of, of broader uh, humanitarian crisis. So if you, again, the Horn of Africa, Southern Africa, uh, we're looking at the Sahel now, which is becoming increasingly, um, we're seeing in increasing incidents of terrorism and also of mm. conflict. And uh, and a lot of that is driven um, by uh, issues, again, of hunger, of water scarcity. So how do we get ahead of that? And, uh, you know, as, as our, our VP, of humanitarian affairs was saying the other day, you know, there's a technical definition, for instance, of famine, but we're seeing that the, the last declaration of famine in Somalia, there are already more people that have died in Somalia than in that famine to date, and yet we haven't yet declared that a famine. So again, oh, how do we draw attention to these enormous crises and how do we galvanize people's attention and not come up against a kind of compassion fatigue, which I think we also are noting? It's so fascinating that I mean, I guess from a, from a, um, a policy dork's perspective, I mean, definitions matter, right? In terms of galvanizing responses. And so that's critically important. Um, but turning back to the, the crisis that is dominating the headlines right now, um, it's been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. And over the past year, CARE has helped nearly 1 million Ukrainians with direct aid and economic and social support. Um, what do you see are the emerging needs now? And, and if the war grinds on, what kinds of humanitarian relief uh, should the global community be thinking about for the near future? Yeah. 
Well, I think there's a number of buckets and um, we talked about these simultaneous uh, needs that are happening. And that's a crisis where there are different kinds of responses that are needed um, based upon both sequencing and geography. So there are a number of places in Ukraine which which need the most immediate kind of assistance. So that is, uh, you know, protective shelter, water, hygiene products, those places where they are, for instance, already under fire, for instance. Um, There's another group that are internally deplaced. Internally displaced, so millions of people in Ukraine that are moving back and forth into zones of safety. But for instance, uh, living in shelters, um, and a lot of them, for instance, um, not gender separated, uh, not always protected. So, so we need to make sure that we're supporting those who are um, not who are no longer in the safety of their own homes and that are are, are often vulnerable. So, especially you know, if you think about elders, uh, seniors, those who are disabled, and then you have another category of those people who have left Ukraine and are yeah. trying to rebuild their lives, largely women and children and the elderly, so about 90%. Um, and they're still living in, you know, they're living in places like Poland. So how are we supporting the the sort of infrastructure in Poland to continue to enable, you know, a million plus citizens to, uh, to kind of be integrated in from a school perspective, from a social security perspective, from a medical perspective. So that's another bucket. And then on the on the sort of horizon is this enormous task of rebuilding Ukraine, which, you know, the price tag is, you know, 150 plus billion dollars. And how are we going to galvanize again, the global community stand with Ukraine in this immediate moment, and then also thinking about the longer term. What lessons have you learned or what best practices have you taken on in collaborating with local efforts on the ground in Ukraine? How does an international aid organization like CARE add value rather than, you know, overwhelm local institutions and and just over what like just the the term of art, I think, is absorptive capacity and and just um, making sure that the, the local community can actually absorb and utilize support? Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of lessons in Ukraine because uh, it, it has demanded a different kind of response and one that is really largely dependent upon and driven by local actors. And so, for instance, you know, CARE has a presence in many places around the world. The Philippines, for example, it's a place that has a a lot of natural disasters. We already have a network of organizations that we work with, we're prepared for. Yeah. Ukraine is not someplace that had uh, infrastructure for humanitarian response, per se. So there has been a, you know, all of the organizations that I know of, whether it's Save the Children or World Vision or CARE, have worked with and created an alliance of local nonprofit partners, civil society organizations, some of whom may not have been humanitarian actors, but have transitioned and transformed, and that we've helped equip them. So, you know, one example, when I was in Poland uh, and there were tens of thousands of people still streaming through, I went to visit a what was a called the Ukrainian house. It was a cultural center where they had weddings and plays and they celebrated the Ukrainian culture. Uh, from the day one of the invasion, they had tr- completely transformed themselves into a, a comprehensive shelter for, uh, for, for Ukrainian refugees. So imagine like literally where the shelter was, was where the stage once was. Of, oh, interesting. Of, 
this uh, cultural center. So CARE, for instance, in that it had had worked with that uh, that organization, helped equip them to become humanitarian responders around cash assistance and a whole bunch of other training and support and resources. And so uh, we also work with something called the Polish Center for International Aid. They had done most of their work outside of Poland. They were in Kenya and and uh, in uh, other places around the world, and they brought and started to work in their own home uh, country. And we partnered with them to help support them to do the work of, for instance, employing Ukrainian refugee teachers to work in the Polish school system. So a lot of innovation, but I will say a huge credit to the Ukrainian people and to the uh, the people of the surrounding countries in you uh, around Ukraine who have um, lifted up their organizations, a lot of women centered and women led organizations that have become actors in this crisis and um, care and others have helped support them, equip them and network them together. Many humanitarian relief efforts occur in fragile or conflict affected areas uh, where the military and, and sometimes the U.S. military is quite active. Uh, how does care manage its relationships with these defense institutions? Um, and, and I guess the, the follow on would be, what do you wish U.S. or and international militaries better understood about humanitarian relief in these conflict-affected areas? Yeah, it's a really kind of a tricky, complex question because, as you know, as humanitarian actors, we have to be neutral. And so we have to be able to work with all parties of, of for instance, a conflict. And and that neutrality, I think, sometimes also has precluded a kind of, at least a conversation that I think could happen between humanitarian and military actors for better uh, kind of and more seamless um, engagement and and, uh, understanding of our various different goals. So uh, from from a a humanitarian and and military perspective, I think there is a upside opportunity, I would say, to enabling uh, humanitarian organizations to continue that neutrality, but still to better uh, advocate for um, the kinds of uh, collaborative actions that we would want to see from uh, the U.S. military or any military, frankly, that's a player within a conflict. You know, one of the first things is obviously uh, the access of, to humanitarian access is one of the key issues in any kind of a conflict situation. So um, having the kind of support and capacity for um, the U.S. military or any military to ensure that humanitarian actors have safe access to the for the distribution of humanitarian uh, supplies. I think we have done that at various different levels, but there's still probably an upside opportunity for um for that conversation. Obviously, we invoke the uh, in, the observance of international law with all military actors um, and ensuring that we are um, that, that everyone is observing those those that basic uh, baseline for, um, for instance, the treatment of civilians and the protection of civilians. So um, I think the, 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 the sort of short answer is I think there's a lot more um, conversation that could be had around ensuring that especially in long term fragile states and conflict Uh, that there is the most productive kind of uh, relationship possible and a a shared understanding of our various different imperatives for uh, more effective protection of citizenry. Uh, Turning to Turkey and Syria, um, it's been estimated that over 45,000 people were killed and with millions in distress. Uh, What is CARE 
role on the ground in that crisis? Um, and how are you prioritizing your efforts? How, how are you thinking about that kind of relief? So CARE uh, has, has already been a long-term player in Turkey and Northwest Syria where the earthquake hit. In fact, we have over 350 staff people, and in fact, two of them lost their lives in the earthquake. So um, we see a situation in which our uh, colleagues are not only um, responding to a humanitarian disaster, but also you know trying to take care of their own families, suffering and grieving their own losses. And so um, I've been astounded at the you know alacrity and amazing agility that they've had to respond. Uh, and it has included, you know, first things first around, um, you know, basic shelter, hygiene items, water. Those were, that was sort of the, the mandate sort of in those early first few days. Um, it will, it will continue to turn now to psychosocial support to long-term capacity for helping people rebuild their lives. Um, I will just highlight that Northwest Syria has had an unimaginable set of, of challenges over the last plus 10 years. So, you know, we have been we had already sort of impacted and been working with over 1.6 million people in northwest Syria before the earthquake hit. And it was already at a level of high degree of humanitarian need. And that's hunger, uh, needs for shelter. We have people who have been in tents for over 10 years, um, if you can imagine that, in cold and heat. Um, they've had COVID and cholera and uh, and just enormous um, set of challenges. And on top of that, now they're facing an earthquake and much less access for humanitarian relief um, in terms of just getting supplies to them and uh, and also um, much less resourcing, frankly, in terms of uh, getting them the support that they need. So that's one of the real priorities for us going forward. First, my condolences for your colleagues. Um, uh, these are, of course, not easy issues to witness or work on day in and day out. Uh, how are you, as care, thinking about mental health across your, 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 your community of, of volunteers and your, your workforce? And, and, and how are you thinking about it in terms of interacting with local partners? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think about all the time our our colleagues that are on the front lines of conflict and natural disaster and every day are, are dealing with these issues. And, um, you know, I, I frankly think that we we all need to figure out how to do more for our humanitarian colleagues uh, from a psychosocial support. CARE does prioritize that in our programming as it relates to our participants. So, you know, CARE often, for instance, is leading the psychosocial support sector within a comprehensive uh, kind of response in, in um, either a refugee situation or natural disaster. So uh, and I, I so I think that we need to continue to ensure that that gets prioritized. Sometimes we can lose sight of that. Um, we, of course, we need to get food, water, shelter. But uh, you can imagine that if you've lost everything, if you uh, perhaps are, are suffering uh, post-traumatic stress, we need to have counselors and the kind of counsel and support. So um, I think that that's a, a sort of something that needs to be centered uh, at a broad level in terms of resourcing for the for sort of the global humanitarian community. And I think it's something that we're still not doing um, sufficiently. I, I will say, uh, you know, in in certain you know in care and and I think across the board. So to turn to one of the, the longer term issues that's that's going to be with us for quite some time, I think, um, the the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which we've sort of talked a little bit about today. Uh, 
Where were you when you first realized that this, this new virus wasn't going to be something like we'd seen before and was going to require a different kind of response from, from care? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it was, it was, I think it was March, uh, right. And three years ago that we were facing into this crisis. And coincidentally, we were a week away from taking our board on a trip to Ghana. And I'm actually going on that same trip a year later. Um, I mean, so three years later, uh, I'm leaving this week to go back and try and and, uh, actually get that trip done. Um, But, you know, I think all of us were looking at something that was unprecedented in our lifetime that we were unsure about its scale and scope and its impact. I think it was scary if we can all remember back, like how it sort of, how we began to absorb what the impacts of this would be for those of us who had kids in school, realizing like school's going to close, but for how long? I think none of us could have imagined at that point. It could be a year and a half or two years before uh, schools totally opened up again. It was, it was just hard to wrap your mind around. And I think for CARE as a humanitarian organization, we were also trying to determine how to lean into the crisis, but also how to, for instance, protect our own, the, the safety of our own staff people. Um, and, uh, and I think we faced this inflection point around, and, and also I think we were all uncertain about the economic impacts. Uh, do we retrench or do we lean in and go forward? And, um, and I think that, uh, I'm, I'm really proud that CARE's team was able to galvanize and we've reached our highest impact numbers over the last couple of years than we've had in our entire history. Um, and I think, you know, it was a moment that called for, you know, literally care as an organization, but care of one another and an understanding of our interdependence and solidarity. So it was definitely a moment that was timely and critical for, um, I think, the organization's history and our actions. Uh, How, in your view, have women and the role of women in societies changed for better or for worse as as a result of the pandemic? And uh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, if you looked at the numbers uh, in the immediate aftermath, I mean, what happens when you have a crisis is that those who are already marginalized or vulnerable uh, mm-hmm. are impacted at the highest level, the worst. Yeah. And so that's what happened with women around the world. And, um, you know, we did surveys in which we were able to tell within the first weeks and months that what women around the world, especially those that were already living in poverty, were saying was this was their biggest concern was issues of hunger, the loss of livelihood and psychosocial support. They were locked in. Their their own homes, for instance, some of them were were having um, the impacts of gender based violence tremendously exacerbated. So we were able to say this is what's the reality for women and girls, and we need to be able to respond to that. Uh, but I think it has definitely been a force, uh, you know, a, a sort of regressive force for women, and for, you know, I think for all of us, we've seen poverty levels go up. We've seen some of our gender inequities, uh, the our our goals have become harder to reach. Um, but I think we have an opportunity to, uh, and we need to have an, and we have an obligation to see how can we um, accelerate and get back track, back on track in terms of the progress that we seek. So as we wrap up today, we are, we are smart women, the smart power. I'm wondering the extent to which, or if you could share your views on the extent to which you feel that being a woman has impacted your decisions or the approaches you've taken to some of these key decisions that you've made. Um, do you think that being a woman brings, allows you to bring something different to the table? Um, and if so, why, and if not, why not? Yeah. 
Well, absolutely. And I think my, my identity as a, as a woman is, is, uh, is, you know, fundamental in shaping my perspective and my orientation to challenges. Um, when you think about the, the COVID crisis as an example, I think women immediately understood, for instance, um, what this was going to mean in terms of education and for, for their children because they were experiencing it d- directly. I think women also, we also understood uh, that 70% of the frontline healthcare workers that were going to deliver care and or vaccinations were women. And um, and so, you know, I think being a woman leading a major organization that was centered on women and girls and having the experience and voices of women and girls that were informing our capacity to make decisions completely shaped our uh, our response and um, and how we moved forward into that into that particular crisis. Uh, but I think um, fundamentally, uh, I think the the the, uh, the real understanding of our interdependence um, at a at a gut level uh, is, um, I think, profoundly held by women. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that is a, a value that care embodies and that I hope that um, as a lead from a leadership perspective that we lean into. Well, Michelle, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking your time to join us this morning and show us how CARE is rethinking humanitarian aid and what it's going to mean for the global community. So again, thank you so much. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power speaker series is supported by City.